This is the Better Call Saul podcast on West Coast Project, and I'm here with Kelly from Better Call Saul Fun Facts. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Hey, my name is Mike. We're doing this, uh, the real Better Call Saul tonight, Kelly. No Breaking Bad flashbacks or recaps. This is it. Better Call Saul, episode one. This is great, exciting stuff. I am in love with this show. Uno. Good, good name for it. Uno. So, Kelly, I have an observation about this show so far. I've only seen this one episode. And for all the concerns these guys have made about making Saul stand on its own, we see some really strong Breaking Bad links sprinkled throughout this first episode. Yes, we do. I noticed that as well. I'm interested to see if you'll see any of the same ones I did. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come across it and we'll comment on them as we, as we find them in our notes here, but... Boy, a lot. A real lot. I also noticed, did you notice this episode was a little bit longer than normal? I did. I think it was maybe 15 minutes over. Not quite. It was like 53 minutes instead of 48 or 9. Yeah, AMC gave them a little bit extra time, and, and we can see in some of these scenes, they let these scenes play out a little bit longer, maybe 15, 20 seconds longer than like an extra beat longer. That opening scene was really long, in my opinion. Well, let's talk about it. The opening yeah. scene is in black and white. And um, did you have any fun facts, first of all, about the Cinnabon and the opening scene? Well, this one was, of course, the first one out of the gate was written and directed by Vince Gilligan. And Peter Gould, was, who created the character of Saul, uh, also was, was, wrote this one. But what's interesting about the Cinnabon is that Bob Odenkirk actually had to take a day of training to learn to be a baker. Um, so Vince Gilligan was saying that he was really good at it and that might be his calling in another life. Um, but the, the song at the beginning um, was called Address Unknown, and it's by the Ink Spots. And it had some really interesting lyrics in it that pertain to the show and what was going on in that first scene. That's a cool, uh, cool song for a guy whose address is supposed to be unknown. Right, and this was 6.9 million viewers, Mike. This is the highest rated cable series debut in history. Yeah, this show's teed up to be really big. I mean, that's an obvious statement, super duh, but it really is looking like a good show and not just going to ride the coattails of Breaking Bad. Looks like a good plot. It's interesting. I mean, had I seen it without ever having known about Breaking Bad, I would have liked this episode a lot. Absolutely. And and um, Dave Lehman, who was uh, on Felina, he was our special guest uh, who had written the obituary. His little daughter was actually in the scene here um, so kind of give her a little credit for her acting. Nice, nice. So it is It is a cooking scene, which is interesting, right? It's in a Cinnabon. And uh, Saul or Jimmy or... Well, we've got a little note about that, too. What do we call this guy? Bean. <laughs> yeah. Well, his, his, I guess when we last saw him, he was... He was thinking he was going to have to go to Nebraska and run a Cinnabon, and and I guess they made him Gene because that's what his tag says. Right, and that's exactly where he shows up. He's in the Omaha Cinnabon, literally cooking cinnamon, cinnamon rolls. Now, Kelly, let's think about this one. Are we in Breaking Bad time mode, or are we in really real February eighth, twenty fifteen time mode, or are we in Saul's time mode? Because this is technically a flash forward. If we're thinking it's in Saul's Jimmy McGill time. 
Oh, I think that it's, uh, I think it was doing, Vince Gilligan did what the viewers wanted. They wanted to see what happened when he got into that van and disappeared. And I think this is him coming out of the van and he's living a really dismal um, life. And he looks super paranoid at the Cinnabon. He thinks that guy's coming towards him, which kind of reminded me of uh, that other episode with Jesse and Walt at the Civic Center. Exactly. So, you know, he's thinking, and those guys, he looked like a Nazi, that guy that was coming towards him. So he's really still in that paranoia frame of mind. Yep, but that's a false alarm, just like Jesse's um, experience with that guy. Um, but so we see all that at the Cinnabon. Then a little bit later on, we see Saul at his apartment. Saul's apartment reminded me of Walt's condo when it walked out. Walt got into Vince Gillian's condo in Albuquerque. Right, right. It's a total bachelor pad, and I love the VCR and kind of the old school. You can just tell he's just going through the steps of life. There's no joy in his world at all. He has, it's a secluded life, but it's not really uncomfortable. He's got a comfortable little pad there. Just lonely. Yeah, he just looks sad. He doesn't look like he has, you know, he has no family. He's had to disappear. He's lost his, uh, you know, he was a TV personality. He's lost all of that. So he looks out the window. He is, he is paranoid. He's looking out the window, and the shades make him look like he's in prison a little bit. He makes himself a drink, and he's kind of relaxing at, at home there. And he finds his hiding place with the photos that he's got stashed, his photos and his passport. And he sits down and watches an old DVD of himself as Saul Goodman, his old commercials. Right, yeah. And then that really brought the audience in, too. Like, he's he's just kind of living up the good old days, almost like somebody would watch maybe a marriage video if their spouse had died. He's just really living in the past, just wanting to be that guy again. And there's a point where it was pointed out, and I didn't notice it until I read it, that there's a little, it's all black and white, but there's a little bit of color on his glasses, Interesting. Yeah, the black and white was was a good way to set it apart from it being different from what his real life is now, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was the first preview scene the opening credits hit at this point. And we're going to come back now to the real-time Saul. He's in court, Kelly, and but he's making everyone wait for him. And like we mentioned, they had a little bit extra time in this episode. So they're making this scene last a little bit longer than it seemed like it was like it would be usual, which made us really pay attention to it, I think. Right. I agree. And he comes in and he's doing the he does a lot of talking to himself, a lot of speeches and and motivational type of things in this episode to himself. And you learn a little bit about Saul, which is so exciting um, but you notice how he's just kind of talking to the urinal as though they're kind of his jury. He's just um, nervous and a new kind of more insecure lawyer. Yeah, kind of a la Tim Roth and Reservoir Dogs. He's in the bathroom practicing what he's going to say. I don't know if you, if you saw that movie. But Tim Roth did that as the cop undercover in Reservoir Dogs. He would run his lines across in the bathroom to practice. Mm, I love Reservoir Dogs. I think he did it in his apartment, too, but he did it a couple times, kind of away from the real place he had to give the lines he would practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everyone's in court waiting for Saul. Now, were you digging through that crowd, Kelly, looking for people that you might catch from Breaking Bad just to see if you could catch a link back to, back to Breaking Bad? No, honestly, I wasn't. I was really just kind of in tune with how... It, it was so uncomfortable. You could hear the buzzing of the light. You could hear people coughing and shuffling their feet. It was just a really uncomfortable scene. 
Uh, didn't even occur to me to look, which I guess would be good on Vince again. I didn't even look for anybody. If you read the forums and the comments everywhere and the you know the blogs and stuff, people are digging for anything they can link. <laughs> Somebody said the middle defendant looked like a young Todd. Maybe that's Todd going to bring to see Todd younger. But I don't think the numbers add up for his age. I think he would be much younger than that guy was. But we did see a drawing. Somebody sketching on a sketch pad. looked like one of Jesse or Jane's tattoo art drawings of a fictional character. Mm, that's interesting. I made that link. So I was looking for those links myself, too. And then, of course, the bailiff. The bailiff looked like he could have been Huell's dad. <laughs> I said that, too. <laughs> So Big Daddy Huell has to go back and get him out of the bathroom to, to hurry him up. And Saul dives right back in. He's right back into his cheesy pitch. His closing arguments look just like the Saul we knew and loved from Breaking Bad. Right. I thought so, too. And and I, I just love how it's just so you can tell that it's 2002 because they've gone back in time. And this is before he has all his flair. Uh, and they don't disappoint. I mean, First thing out of the gate, they're talking about boys that cut off a cadaver head and had sex with it. You know, right out of the gate, it's it's gory. His clients match the exact same clients he would have had back in our Breaking Bad days. And he says they're almost honor students. Kelly, everyone is almost an honor student, any student. He's really reaching and probing here for what he can get out of the, out of the jury. <laughs> but the prosecutor just shows the video of the crime, which says it all. He doesn't even have to say a word. And I took the I took the rolling TV stand a little bit like Gus dragging that chair around in the old folks' home too. But that video gave us a little bit of a clue. It's October thirteenth, two thousand and one. So we now we have the time frame. I'm assuming this crime was pretty close to the date on that video. So that's about the time frame, somewhere in two thousand and one. So does his best, but I don't think he does very well with these defendants. We see him cashing his check. He gets seven hundred dollars per case. And we learned that he d- didn't win the case. I think the girl giving him the check says, you didn't even win. They, they, they're going to jail. So we find out he's, he's unsuccessful, but he gets his $700 per case, which is probably not very much money because he has to put a lot of work into each of these cases. Right. He didn't have a prayer with that video. But this is where I want to see if you notice as he's coming out of the a courtroom in the parking lot, if you notice the same thing that I did, that there was a 1997 Cadillac DeVille parked there in white, and you think that he's heading towards that, and you're like, wait a minute, this isn't the Saul we know, and then he gets into that rust bucket yellow esteem. Yeah, I noticed that car. Was that the car that he had when he was in around the boys, around Jesse and Walt? Yes, the one that Jesse steals. Uh-huh. It was a white Cadillac DeVille. Okay. I did notice that Saul takes a call, and I thought for sure we were going to see him snap that phone in half, and you were going to be rolling on the floor in happiness. But he doesn't. He just takes the call, and he's his own secretary, his British, uh, I guess, guy or lady. I couldn't tell, but he had a fake British voice to become his own secretary and sound more important than he really was. And offers to set up a meeting kind of external to his crappy office, which we're going to see pretty soon. Right. He has to get out of that parking lot, though, Kelly, and he meets up with Mike. He doesn't have the $3 or he doesn't have the, the certification, the validation to get past the $3 fee. And he goes back in to get it. He doesn't even want to cut loose with $3. Um, but Mike looks pretty good. Are you buying the time gained back in 2001 here that Mike is supposed to look a little younger? Do you think he looks right? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, they. I didn't think it, it didn't. I didn't notice it to think like, oh, that's ridiculous or anything. And it was really great to see him. And then that's a whole other story. Is he's not a Philadelphia cop? What's he doing here, taking tickets at a parking garage? Yeah, I think his Philadelphia copness was probably back farther in his history. Mm-hmm. But he's not a cop, or he's not. Maybe he's retired, but he's, I don't know why he'd be taking this job. So they're probably trying to tell us something with. Maybe he's on the run a little bit too. Maybe whatever happened with him in Pennsylvania made him kind of come out west and lay low for a while. Yeah, I hope we learn a little bit more about him. That would be great. I'm thinking we probably will. Mm-hmm. So Saul's meeting is with this guy Greg and his wife, and they're at the 66 Diner Cafe. I think I've been there in real life, Kelly. Not anything related to Breaking Bad, but I think I've been at that diner in my passing through Albuquerque. But they're they're meeting because this guy's in trouble. He's a he's a state treasurer or some kind of treasurer, and he's in trouble for embezzling 1.6 million dollars. And one of the one of my favorite actresses was in here. Betsy Kettleman is played by Julianne Emery, who was on Fargo. Oh, is that her? Yeah, that's her. She looks really young. She looks pretty, a lot younger than she did on Fargo. She looks like a like a very young woman. She but, really does. You think there's anything with her being named Betsy, like Betsy Brandt? I don't know. This should be <laughs> the second Betsy in this in this world. Yeah. Um, but Saul's trying to sell himself as their lawyer. He wants them to hire him as the lawyer. Now, Kelly, you're in sales. Have you ever had that breath-holding moment when you slip somebody the contract and you hope they sign it and wonder if they're going to really sign it? Yes, and I thought, what a great shot when you can actually listen to him swallow. You can just look at the desperation on his face. And, of course, the wife has to shut it down, let's sleep on it. But that guy was just starting to sign it, and I guess that kind of clued us in on how really desperate he is. He is somehow that this Betsy, the wife, kind of clues into that he's desperate and that kind of warns her husband, like, let's sleep on it. Let's wait. Right. But this was one of those scenes with a little bit extra time that they had that little bit extra fraction of a beat that makes it really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. All right. Now we see the skateboarder scam. Uh, Kelly, these two brothers looked really familiar to me. I don't know where they are from or what actors they are. Do you happen to know anything about them? Uh, yes, they are Steve and Daniel Levine. They're twins. One of them was in a movie, and I it, it escapes me now, but their IMDb is pretty scarce. Well, they're pretty young, and, and in this scene, they work Saul pretty hard, at least I thought, until, until it kind of pans out, and I guess all along, Saul was working them, letting them kind of hang enough rope to hang themselves pretty good. They want $500 to get to not call the police and to let Saul off the hook for having hit this kid on the skateboard. But, of course, it's all set up. They, they do this for a living. And, Kelly, we're starting to see windshields break again. <laughs> yep, I was going to say that he's, if, when he pulls away, you can see the broken windshield and then also the missing hubcap. Yeah, so another link to the past here. And when he was driving around, I swear he didn't, but when he was driving and ordering the fake flowers and all that, it looked like he was pulling up to Walter White's house in that neighborhood. They all look kind of similar like that. So another link was, of course, Saul's office has to be in the back of a nail salon, and that's where he goes. We see his office, uh, a working nail salon. Doesn't he have his own entrance? He has to walk through where the customers are, and it's a shitty office, Kelly. The water heater's right there next to his chair. He's, he's literally in a boiler room. 
Right. And I did a fun fact about this today because I found it really interesting that the Breaking Bad staff, uh, the location scouts, had come there. And some people were getting it confused when he was trying to sell Jesse the nail salon, and it's not the same place. Um, but the address that are on those kind of sad-looking blue business cards, the six, the uh, 160 Juan to Lane, uh, is actually where this nail salon is located. Of course, the the office is on a set. Um, but if you remember, another Breaking Bad link was when uh, Walt was telling Jesse to go kill Gail Bedecker, and the address was 6353 Wantabo Lane. Yeah, that was a cool reference. Yeah. But now those are those are matchbooks, aren't they? They're not business cards, like matchbooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're um, matchbooks, right? So Saul has nothing but bad news. There's no love on his phone message machine, nothing but overdue bills, and he does get one piece of mail that's pretty interesting. It's a check for twenty six thousand dollars from Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill. We're gonna meet these people pretty soon, but. When I first saw that check, I thought, oh, Saul saved. He's got a little bit of breathing room now. But um, he surprises us, right? He does. Yeah, when he ripped it up, I, we're, me and my friend were wondering, well, what's that all about? And I thought maybe that they were trying to get him to do something unsavory. I think we're supposed to see that Saul has a pretty good, a solid good side to him the way he destroys this check and doesn't just take advantage of it from... Uh, because the, the law firm is trick, being tricky and sending it to him because they probably know he's real needy and not his brother. And, um, but Saul doesn't crack. He, he, he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the check and cash it. He destroys it, which was pretty cool. I think we're going to see a new side, new side of Saul here. Yeah, I thought, too, that it was because if he took it, then that he said, I'm not going to leave you with a paper trail. And if he took it, that would mean that... Um, they were going to get a better deal out of that brother. I guess we'll find out more later. I think that might have meant that the brother's deal is done if he takes the final 26000 severance. Right. That's it. Yeah, and we see a chrome-dented garbage can in that office, which had another reference back to some chrome-dented fist-punching and kicking, and we'll see how that works out. But um, Jimmy works himself up again. See, that's just, I'm having a hard time calling him Saul or Jimmy or Gene. I'm going to call him what he is, I think, at the time here. So Jimmy works himself up to go into this meeting at this Hamlin law, law firm. Um, and he goes right up to sexy secretary Brenda and blows right past her. Um, <laughs> he knows people in there, right? He knows the other people on the stairway. He's, he's pretty, pretty at home in this place. Right, right. And you know McGill is his, is his name, so you assume that's probably the brother from what we knew from before uh, with the research and stuff. That was his brother. Yeah. So he's all chummy with everybody. Yeah, but even though that's your brother, you're not that necessarily chummy with the people in your brother's office. Not like it's his office. Yeah, I don't know. He seemed to know everybody. So he drops a check on, the, on this cool uh, big conference room. Now, this conference room, he makes quite an entrance and exit, Kelly. Did you have anything on that? Yes. Uh, I have not seen this movie, but apparently that they were uh, taking off of Ned Beatty uh, in the movie Network. Have you seen this movie? Yeah, it's a great movie. Right. It says he ripped into Howard for what he has done. So, whatever that means. <laughs> um, but he, just, he shows him this check, and um, they kind of tell him it's Chuck's money. And that's not all there was. That's a start. There'll be more. So there's a hint now what's, a, what's going on with this guy, Chuck, his brother. 
And apparently Chuck is disabled, so they wrote him. They wrote the check to Saul or to Jimmy to give to Chuck. And it's, it looks like it's been a year since Chuck's been there. Uh, and they're still saving his spot. They're saving his office. They have a secretary on payroll still. And um, but they're trying to buy him out. I think with this twenty six thousand was the implication. I don't trust this Howard Hamlin as far as I can throw him. He looks like he's. Uh, he, you know, the kind that will smile while he's stabbing you in the back. He doesn't look very trustworthy to me. Yeah, and Saul relates that $17 million is the real number. This Chuck apparently started this law firm with these Hamlin dudes, and a third of its value is what's due to Chuck, which is the $17 million. So that does make 26000 look like kind of a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then Jimmy makes his his grand escape, just like he did with his entrance, with another line from that movie. And Howard tries to hand him a bunch of Jimmy's filings, like his work. Essentially, I think, like you said, establishing paperwork, a paper trail. Like, if you take this work, it means he's still working, and like doing his day-to-day stuff, I guess. Now, there was an interesting scene at the end of this, Kelly. He goes outside in the parking garage, and he sees... Kim. Kim and out in the garage. What was up with that? Well, I don't think we're supposed to know. She said, you know, you know, I can't do that. But more importantly than that was the shot. If you if you remember the shot they had between that horizontal light and dark over their faces. Yeah, the slash. That's probably one of the most beautiful shots I've seen thus far of Vince Gilligan. I mean, that was so telling in that dark alley. But. What he was asking her to do hasn't been established yet, I don't believe. Yeah, he says, couldn't you just, and she interrupts him and just says, no, I can't. And I guess we should say, before he gets out there, he comes across Betsy and Craig, the people he was trying to get to hire him, and they've gone to this Hamlin group now to maybe get lawyers from them instead of using Saul or Jimmy. Oh, that's right, and I found that really sad, because, you know, he heard their names and he turns around and... Lo and behold, they went with somebody more established. So we go to Chuck's house. Did you figure out what Chuck's deal was when you first watched it, Kelly? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll go through and you can chip in when you, when you have stuff. So he has to put all of his electronics in the mailbox before he can go inside. I guess that's a big clue. And he, he goes in there and all the, all the wiring is kind of modified and insulated and crazy looking. It's, all the wires just look crazy. And there is no electricity running. There's no electrical lights or anything. And Chuck's typing away on like a manual typewriter. He has a he has a Coleman lantern. He has to light with a flame. And they have a they have a cooler instead of a refrigerator. What what were you thinking when you saw this for the first time? Well, at first I thought that he was some type of recluse. Um, but as they discuss um, the conversation about Howard Hamlin coming over, I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, uh, but he says, I'm not a recluse, but he mentions electro- electric... Electromagnetic hypersensitivity is, yes. is his fear or his disease. <laughs> yeah, what's the word he uses when you put when he says, did you shelf yourself or did you, when you put your stuff in the um, mailbox? Oh, did you ground yourself? Ground yourself. So he's obviously afraid of, uh, you know, whatever cell phones have the radioactive and he's got some sort of paranoia. He's afraid of everything that uses electricity, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he's right. actually typing up a letter on this typewriter um, on some electromagnetic 
uh, topic that he wants to share with people. So he's really kind of he's going a little bonkers. I mean, it's it's I guess it's probably a lot like what hoarders have. It's kind of a it's a sensitivity to something you probably don't have to really worry about in real life, but he's really worried that it's hurting him somehow. And Saul advises, uh, first of all, Chuck is his brother, Chuck McGill, is played by Michael McKean, he's a pretty cool actor. And Saul advises Chuck to cash out. You got you to gotta cash out. I can't support you anymore. When I saw this house, Kelly, I thought that the power was off because he couldn't afford to pay the power bill at first. So they're, but they're both obviously kind of hurting for money, right? Absolutely. And you would think with Chuck being a lawyer and that being part of his firm, but I think that's part of the problem there is is Saul, or well, Saul, Jimmy, is trying to tell him, look, you're broke. And if you don't get out of this and you're just going to, then there's going to be a bunch of electronics raining down on you because you're going to have to be back in the world. Yeah. And if he's, if Saul is the one supporting him, Saul has less than nothing. Not a good situation. So Saul tells him he should cash out, um, but Chuck is a Chuck is a good guy too because he says if they pay out his share and they're forced to liquidate the law firm, all of his clients will be in trouble. All the employees at the law firm will be in trouble. The maintenance people, the mailroom people, like he's really concerned about other people and not just being greedy for himself. It kind of reminded me of Ted away, just with all the worrying about all of his. Um, employees. Yeah, but Ted was just bullshitting. Ted was saying that <laughs> to justify his being greedy. Mm-hmm. I don't think Chuck would run out and buy a BMW if he came into some money like Ted did. <laughs> Probably not. Um, so Chuck gives Saul the advice, or God, we got to get these names right. Chuck gives Jimmy the advice that public defender work is valuable. You should look at the experience and consider it something that is more important than money. It, money is beside the point. And Jimmy kind of says, well, money is, money is the point. <laughs> uh, I can't provide for you anymore. And it's really kind of a telling situation of their financial condition. Um, but they find out, or we find out, too, that Chuck gets $850 a month stipend from this Hamlin Hamlin group, which is really a paltry amount, cons- considering, like you said, their office looks super nice. Right. That's pennies. Yeah. But Saul is kind to him. You can tell Saul kind of loves his brother here, right? He's taking care of him. Um, so I like the relationship between right away between Chuck and Jimmy slash Saul. But uh, Chuck tells Jimmy that Howard wants him to change his name because Jimmy McGill is too close to Hamlin Hamlin McGill. And I think this might be the real first kernel of how we get to see Saul Goodman, right? Because he's going to have to change his name because of this. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. He said, how about Vanguard or something else? And he's like, well, just because Hamlin tells you I have to do this, I have to do this. And Saul or Jimmy kind of questions his brother's loyalty, like, well, what side are you on? And I did think that he was pretty – his brother was defending the the law firm a little bit where Jimmy can use those matchbooks if he wants – yeah, or they'll make you new matchbooks if you want. Just you got to change your name from McGill. But I think this is the moment Saul Goodman gets born, Kelly. I think this is where Saul really gets pissed off. He leaves. He's totally motivated now to get even with this guy, Howard Hamlin, who uh, he knows is screwing his brother over. I think this is the moment. 
Right, I agree. So Saul finds the skateboarders, Kelly, and of course they're surprised that he found them, but they're at a skate park. I mean, come on. Yeah, I love that. The big words is skate park. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. And he, they're ready to go, but Saul says, come on, we got business. Give me a minute. And this, their names are Cal and somebody else. I didn't get the other guy's name. I don't know if you caught it. No. But I think like any good strategist, Saul is using the elements in the field around him to make whatever he needs to for his plan of action. He's using the tools that he has, right? And these guys are going to be tools that he has in this little idea. And he's going to come up with another scam using them. Essentially, I think the scam is to get the controller and his wife to hire him, and they're going to, he's going to guilt them into hiring him. Right, I think he's going to have them have that one kid jump in front of the grocery getter and then show up just in the nick of time and be her big hero. Yeah, so they'll see, like, oh, what a great lawyer. This guy is good. We should hire him for this. Like, he's not scamming them out of money. He just wants them to hire him. Right, right. So in the process of this, Saul tells his story, Kelly, about what where he came from, which we get some cool information about where, where Jimmy McGill came from. And he tells a story about Cicero, Illinois, where back in the day he was known as Slipping Jimmy. He was the man who would slip and fall for during the Cicero winters in Chicago wintertime. And he'd get six to $8,000 per fall on the right, with the right deal. And um, he'd have to go to the special part of Chicago called State Street or Michigan Avenue, which are really ritzy parts of Chicago. And I really like this whole reference to Chicago, because if you think of Cicero and Chicago, Al Capone is from Cicero. Um, and Cicero was also a Roman orator, a Roman... Um, philosopher so Saul is a bit of a modern day philosopher and I think Odenkirk is from Chicago in real life so they tied all these three things together which I thought was neat right it's interesting and they were saying that Gilligan would kind of perch Jimmy atop at the skate park uh, was kind of a visual of the biblical sermon on the mount because he's kind of sitting up at the top and has them down at the bottom it's a really cool shot did you believe his scam? Did you believe his J- Jimmy slip and fall? That Do you think he really did that? Absolutely. Well, we find out the skateboarders and their scam only have made $630 on their very best day, and they had to do that, and that's a sum amount for two different accidents that they created. So Saul's going to introduce a new deal to them that makes it really more attractive. He's going to give them $2,000 to uh, set up this Kettleman's car to, to skateboard in front of it and get hit by it and win them over. Now, Kelly, did you... How many times have you watched this episode? Twice. Okay. Did you catch the whole, the whole details of the car on the first time you watched it? No. Or did you catch it on the second time you watched it? <laughs> Which car are you talking about? Well, the car that hits the skateboarder being different than the car that takes off from the Kettleman's house. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I did ch- I did check it on the second watch. And the way I checked it was with the license plate. Different license plate on the second car. Right. On the car that we see in the driveway. But anyway, the deal is they set up this Kettleman's car. Saul watches it. Then he calls them. And then they get all set up. And they do it. But the car drives away. And it's someone else driving this car, right? Yes. This was a great scene. 
Because you know nothing is going to go right. There's no way this could go smooth. Yeah, so why do you think this woman hit and ran? She panicked or she wasn't aware of it. She's just this old, short Hispanic woman, and she probably just thought, hell, I'm going to just hit and run and get out of here. You know, human nature, people panic. She's ran over some white kid. (laughs) She's probably out of there. Yeah. So at first Saul thinks this is a kind of a bonus because this is a felony. Now it's hit and run. And he kind of changes the plan a little bit. Like, okay, now tell her you're my, I'm your lawyer and we'll figure it out from there. And they're following the car by um, trailing along behind this truck. I thought that was pretty cool too. That was a great shot. But I I was thinking that, um, that Jimmy McGill was still thinking that was Betsy. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Oh, okay. Okay. I think he thinks it's Betsy when he finds the car at the house. Right. It looks like the car. It looks exactly like the car. Right. Okay. I actually looked this up, Kelly. There were about 100,000 Mercury Sables made every year for about 10 years straight. So there's a million of those cars. There's a lot of those cars. Um, It's a copy of a Ford Escort and and the Ford Escort or Ford Taurus one of one of the two of them was the car of the year. It was a really popular car, so Mercury made this Mercury Sable, which is the same thing. So there's a lot of these cars that look like each other. So it's it's pretty understandable that there might be two of them in in this Albuquerque neighborhood that look kind of the same. Yep, I'd have to agree. And no offense to anyone who has that car, but that is an ugly color <laughs> and common. I've seen that color a lot. Sandalwood, medium sandalwood. Baby, baby poop color. Not not even bright sandalwood, (laughs) medium sandalwood. Yeah. But the real car, the license plate is 401 PNO, and I don't know what the car in the house's driveway is, but it's for something else, something else. It's not the same car. Now, they're on Juan Tabo again, right? As they're calling to tell Saul where they are, or Jimmy where they are, they're still going down Juan Tabo. Right. It's pretty, why do you think they're focusing on this street, this Gales street? Mm, I don't know. Just maybe to I don't really have any theory on why they why they would choose that particular area. So we get a couple clues as uh this lady walks up. They find this lady, the skateboarders find this lady and they kind of encounter her before she can get inside the house. And um she says Miho, Miho. And Miho is the name of the next episode, but it's also kind of the so it's like a it's like a older person calling a boy like Sonny. Like Sonny? Like a grandma might call her grandson or something. Like my eho. It's a it's a contraction together for for Miho. Mm. And that's where the name comes from. And we find out who the Miho is, Kelly, tell everybody who it is. Tuco! Tuco. Tuco shows his dumbass out the door with a gun and he looks right around to see what trouble's out there and pulls poor Jimmy inside and that's kind of the end of the episode you know I, I found out I, re- I thought that Raymond Cruz um, left Breaking Bad because he had another show that he was doing The Closer but apparently I read an article or an interview with him and he left because he was having difficulty portraying Tuco hmm. he was supposed to be the antagonist the main antagonist for season, season 2 uh, but he said that it was very difficult to portray that type of character. 
So let's try to deduce who this woman is, this old Spanish woman. He calls her Abuelita, which means grandma. So she could be Hector's mom, almost. Tio? Or Hector's... Because his Hector is his uncle, so his grandma would be the mother, and she'd be in the right layer of family there to be the mother of Hector. Oh, that would be so crazy if we saw Hector. I was going to say maybe she could be Hector's wife, but they call her Abuelita, so she's one generation older than Hector. But um, that's it. That's she. So so Jimmy is in Tuco's house with Tuco's grandmother, somewhere in Albuquerque with these skateboard dudes. Now they're in there too, right? I believe so. Oh my god. <sighs> Yeah, everybody was freaking out on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. That wasn't really unexpected. Nobody thought it was going to be Tuco out of all the people they could have brought back. All right, Kelly. Well, this is our Better Call Saul podcast on uh, West Coast Project. I have a couple spoilery things to say, so I'll let people sign out now if they want to want to leave us. But um, if you do want to write to us, you can write to support at West Coast Project or my Twitter account is at Scathing Tweets. And Kelly, how do people reach you? Uh, my Twitter is BRBA underscore fun facts. If you prefer Facebook, I have Breaking Bad Fun Facts and Better Call Saul Fun Facts. And I also have Instagram with the same name, Breaking Bad Fun Facts and Better Call Saul Fun Facts. Awesome. So until next time, which is only a couple days this week because we have night after night, a dual kind of a dual entree to this season. Till we do Miho, that'll be it. I'm excited. This is so good. I'm so happy that we have a new show. All right. So if you're still with us, Kelly, I heard a couple spoilers about Miho. Okay. So first of all, Miho, I have not seen yet, but Miho means Tuco, essentially, in this context, because she's saying it to Tuco. So I think Tuco is going to play really big in the second episode. And I've heard that from people who have seen all three episodes, they give the screeners three episodes. The um, middle episode, episode two, is the one that's most like Breaking Bad out of the first three. Hmm. And I thought this one was a lot like Breaking Bad. I thought so, too. Um, I'm about ready to watch that one. I'm sure you probably are, too. But I remember in Breaking Bad that it was probably Tuco or, or I'm sorry, not Tuco. It was Tio or somebody called Tuco Miho. I remember that. Yeah. I think it's like, hey, Sonny. Hey, boy. Mm-hmm. Like little boy. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a common Hispanic reference to a, to a boy. Affect, affectionately calling somebody that. Mm-hmm. And then I think I know a little bit more about episode two is that I think Tuco takes Saul out into the desert, kind of like the way Walt and Jesse took him out when they first met him on the first 208 of Breaking Bad. Oh, okay. Well, we're, I'm still waiting to find out who Ignacio is and that whole, when he was with out in the middle of the desert with Walt and Jesse. Ignacio. What yeah. was that reference? I don't know. That's what, We've never known. That's always been the question because he was like, did Ignacio send you? No? Oh, thank God. And he's out. He, and Walt and Jesse are like, who's that? Oh, that's a great catch. Yeah, that's a great point. So I'm really excited to find out if they let us know who that is. I'm sure they will. Um, but they did have the comparison of when um, Walt and Gus fall on the ground, kind of that horizontal headshot. And I think that Saul does the same thing and see in the next one. 
So, Kelly, I, there were a couple other spoilers. We were, gonna, we were gonna do a preview episode, and we didn't really feel like it was smart to do it the same day as the first night, the first episode came out. So, I mean, I have a couple spoilers too. If you want to take another minute or two to talk about those, yeah, let's do it. Uh, one, one, I read an interview about with Gilligan and Peter Gould, and they asked. I don't have the reference for it. I'm sorry. But they said, "Is was there ever a point of the show where you came close to killing off Saul? And if the story had dictated that Saul should die, would you have done it or would you have tried to find a way around it because of this show? And then Vince says, yeah, we did think about it. And the time was in the last couple episodes, we did talk about it a lot. And Peter Gould said it was definitely on the table when everything was blowing up around Walt. So they thought about killing off Saul at the end of uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah, Vince Gilligan said if it had if it had helped the ending of Breaking Bad, they wouldn't have sacrificed Saul to have a sequel or a spinoff. Now on the on the interview I just sent to you, which I'll post in the show notes, this guy talks to talks to Bob Odenkirk, and Odenkirk says that uh, Gilligan talked to him about doing an extended series like way back in the beginning, like season two and three. Like, hey, if I if I if I had the time and the inclination, would you be into doing us a, a Saul spinoff? So, Gillian was thinking about this for a long time. Yeah, I can imagine Saul's a really popular and fun to write for character. Oh, uh, what else? Did you have any spoilers that you had found in your pre preview notes? No, nothing. Um, nothing that I can think of. They were. It was really interesting. They talk about some stuff like. If you bring back uh, if you bring back Gus, he can't really interact with Jimmy because he can only have scenes with Mike. And then Gilgan says, "Yeah, that's true." But Peter Gould said, "Well, he could he could interact with him if he was in the chicken restaurant." So so if Gus comes back, he can't really know Saul unless it's through Mike or just having Saul go into like Poyos or Manos. So they're pinning down all these details. Like, they're not going to cross up and make, like, a continuity error because of Better Call Saul. They're going to make, uh, they're going to make everything fall in line so it fits just like, just like it should. Absolutely. And, and it's been said over and over that they don't want this to be Breaking Bad Part 2. They want it to stand on its own two feet. And I think it does a great job. And, and if they bring people back, like major characters, it won't be until at least Season 2, which they're already writing. Yeah. So, so Kelly, that's about all I have for Uno. Unless you have anything else to add, I'll talk to you next time on Miho. Sounds great. Can't wait. All right. Talk to you then. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.